My fault? We're good now? Yes. We're in the, right in the middle of this series called The Upside Down Kingdom, Christ Formed in Us, which is a, a brief series through the Beatitudes. And today we're looking at the one where Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. When I was in elementary, it was a common thing for someone to walk up to you and say, do you want to play mercy? The way you play the game mercy is that you stand, you face one another, you interlock fingers, and then when you say go, you try to squeeze each other's fingers or twist them in such a way to inflict so much pain on the other person that they eventually say mercy, and then whoever is winning would be obligated to let go, release your grip, and show mercy. And when you, were show, when you would show mercy, you would immediately relieve their misery. I don't know if this is still a game people play or not. I don't still play it. I guess I could if any of you want to after the service. Uh, but mis misery is relieved by mercy. And the older I get, the more I see that people all around are experiencing pain, suffering, and misery, even in uh, relatively wealthy suburbs, even in a church like ours, you don't always see it. When you walk in, you sit down next to someone, but you don't know what they're going through. You don't know the pain. You don't know the illness. You don't know the relational conflict and turmoil that they're feeling inside. You don't know what sin feels enslaving. But when we're faced with real hurt, real pain, real misery in the people around us, what does mercy look like? Jesus is inviting us into a merciful life. He's, he's saying this is the happy life, the blessed life, the flourishing life. It's a life filled with mercy. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 if you haven't already. I want us today to read out loud together these Beatitudes. We've been in this series saying that Jesus is inviting us into, to follow him in his upside down kingdom as the only way to experience true happiness, true flourishing. This is the introduction to his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's opening by saying, do you want to know what the good life is? you want to know what the truly happy life is? It looks like this. And he describes it with these beatitudes, these characteristics. Beatitude just comes from the Latin word that means happy. And so Jesus is inviting us into this life, a life characterized by these truths. I'm going to read it out loud together. We'll be reading from the CSB. So if you don't have it, that translation, it will be on the screen. Let's read these and hear what Jesus describes as the blessed life, starting verse 3 together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Last week, David preached, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And he described that that righteousness is is filled out. It's described more in these following Beatitudes. And I'm really glad that the one that comes right after it is merciful. We hear righteous and we think of justice. And you could maybe lean towards someone who just follows all the rules and holds everyone to those rules. But then the very next one that Jesus says is the happy life, the truly flourishing life is a life that's filled with mercy toward others. And they will be shown mercy. Right away, Jesus is is saying there's a connection between the mercy that we receive and the mercy that we give. And toward the end of the the sermon, we'll look more at what is that connection. What's What's the relationship between the mercy we receive and the mercy we show to others? But let me just summarize it by this. When you humbly know mercy, you joyfully show mercy. When you humbly know mercy, you joyfully show mercy. What is mercy? It's a word that shows up over 150 times in our Bible. If you come to church regularly, you hear it probably every week. It was in at least three of our songs today. It was in our prayer of confession. It was in our assurance of pardon. We talk about and we hear about mercy a lot, but we might have this vague sense of what mercy is, but still maybe miss some of the true meaning of what Jesus is inviting us into. So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, what does he mean by merciful? I want to give a definition and then defend it and describe that as we go through this sermon. Mercy is costly love in action that relieves the misery of sinners and sufferers. It's costly. It costs us something. This isn't something that's just easy for us to do. It's love. So there is, there's an emotion there. There's a feeling towards someone else, but it's in action, a, a costly love in action. And it's relieving, just like releasing the grip on someone's finger, relieves their misery. Mercy toward others relieves the misery. But it's, it's two different categories that we'll look at towards sin, sinners, and towards sufferers. And I want to show that by looking at two different ways Jesus used the word mercy in two different parables. One is going to emphasize our mercy towards sin. That's the parable of the the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. And then after that, we'll look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Jesus uses the word mercy again to describe the way that we show kindness and care and costly love in action toward those who are in great need or who are suffering, who are hurting. So let's think first of the parable of the unmerciful servants. You can turn there if you want. I'm not actually going to read it. I'm going to summarize it for you. But if you want to follow along, it's in Matthew 18. 
Peter asked Jesus a question. How many times do I have to forgive someone? Seven times? You know, he's kind of thinking this is going to be good. That is a lot. That's a lot. If you think of someone in your life who keeps doing the same thing against you and you forgive them and then they go do it again and you forgive them. Seven times is a lot. But Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And then he tells this story. He says, think about a guy living in this kingdom who owes a king 10,000 bags of gold. I don't know what that would come to. I've read different calculations. Let's just say it's a billion dollars. Let's think of something so unpaybackable as $10 billion. He has this enormous debt. And, and the king calls him and says, you owe me this debt you need to pay it now or you and your family will become indentured servants. You'll become slaves. And the man begs the king for mercy. Have pity on me, king. I can't ever pay this back. And the king does. He has mercy on him and says, okay, I will cancel your debt. The guy leaves and he goes out maybe trying to get his finances in order. He finds someone else who owes him a few pieces of silver. And he says to him, you owe me this. Pay it back now. And the guy asks him for mercy. And you would expect in the story for him to say, okay, I was just forgiven so much, this enormous weight. I can forgive you this little bit. But he doesn't. It says that he demands it. He grabs him. And it says he starts choking him. And he's saying, you must pay it now. And the king finds out. And these are the words, the last three verses of that parable. Jesus says, the king finds out and he says to him, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So Jesus is linking here mercy and forgiveness and he's saying, those of us who've been forgiven by God, it would be unthinkable for us to then go out and be unforgiving toward others. When you think of the enormous amount of mercy and forgiveness that God has shown to us, it'd be audacious for us to then go and act in bitterness and vengeance toward others who have sinned against us. Jesus again stating this connection between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness that we show to others. And he's saying that the stakes are really high. That if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, you will be merciful to others. And if you withhold mercy and forgiveness from others, then you should question whether or not you have truly repented and turned to Christ and found forgiveness in him. Last year, Tim Keller released a book called Forgive. Why should I and how can I? It's a great book. And in it, he tells an illustration that maybe some of you have heard this story before about Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie was a Dutch Christian. Her family hid Jews from Nazis. And sometime after, during the war, her family was captured and her and her sister were in a concentration camp experiencing immense suffering and shame and torture there. And her sister even died there in that concentration camp. 
But after the war, some years after the war, Cory Timboom was in Germany, and she was giving a lecture, teaching about the gospel and about the power of forgiveness. And after her session was over, a man walked up to her. He didn't recognize her, but she immediately recognized him. He was one of the guards at her concentration camp. And it sent her into a flashback of memories of the pain, of the, of the shame, of the nakedness, of the, of the starvation, and, and seeing her sister die there. And he came up to her with his hand extended, thanking her for her message about the power of forgiveness. And he told her about how he had turned to Christ and how Christ had forgiven him of the, the cruelties and the ways that he treated people during the war. And he was asking her to, to confirm and agree with how amazing that is that his sins were cast into the bottom of the sea. And as he was standing there with his arm extended, she says, I couldn't raise mine. I kept my hand in my pocket. I had, I had just... I had just preached about the gospel and about the power of God's forgiveness, but here I am standing withholding forgiveness. But you can imagine the conflict, the inner conflict that she was experiencing. She says, Could he erase my sister's slow, terrible death simply by asking for forgiveness? She's standing there, his arm extended, her hand in her, at her side. She said she started, though, to think about the forgiveness that God shows to her every day. And she started also to think about the ways that she had seen bitterness paralyze some of her other friends, leaving them as invalids. And so here are her words. She says, silently I pray, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so woodenly, Mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And she says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did right then. That story demonstrates the difficulty of forgiveness. We can quickly understand or imagine why it would be hard for her to shake his hand, to extend that forgiveness. But God's help brought her to the point where she says, I don't know if I can do it all, but I can do this much as she extended her hand and God began to change her heart. Possibly for some here today, the whole time I've been talking about this topic, someone's been on your mind. There's a grudge, there's a bitterness, there's someone that you haven't talked to for a long time, family member or someone in this church that. You, when you pass them in the hall, you look the other way. Some other friend. I'm not asking you to, to dig deep and try to make up someone, but for some people, they've been on your mind the whole time. 
maybe this simple prayer. Jesus, help me. I can't do it. But help me take a step. It might be a long journey. It might, be, it might take counseling. It might take talking to, to others. But Jesus, I want to take this step of releasing my bitterness, releasing my grudge. But, but for many others, no one came to your mind. There's not a specific person that you're holding bitterness toward. But when you think of your general attitude toward sinners, when you think of your general attitude towards seeing people living in their sin or seeing people in our community, people around you, is your heart toward them filled with more disgust and disdain? Or is it characterized by mercy, compassion, sorrow for them, seeing them as enslaved in their sins and seeing that the path to that sin is leading to their destruction. And so as you look at them, your heart breaks. Which one happens more often? I, I heard a quote this week that said, when it comes to our, or this is what it says, we are very good lawyers for our own mistakes and very good judges for the mistakes of others. We're good at defending ourselves. We're quick to explain why. Well, we're just tired. Been under a lot of pressure lately. Been under a lot of stress. You can't expect me to be perfect. That's not what I meant when I said that. That's not what I meant when I did that. I just wasn't thinking. We've got all of our excuses for our own mistakes, our own sins. But then we're quick to act like judges when we see others. We no longer extend that same kind of mercy. We no longer try to think through perspective and seeing, the, seeing them with eyes of mercy and compassion. Parents, maybe it's towards your kids. I felt this all week preparing for this sermon. I didn't ask my kids this week. I thought about it a couple different times. Would you consider me merciful? But I didn't ask them. And I don't know what they would say. It's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to know, okay, where, where are consequences? But where, where are these consequences that I'm giving no longer about their heart and about helping them? It's, it's vengeance. Making them just pay for it or, or making them, I just want my convenience. Is my heart toward them broken for their sin or disgusted by their sin? Kids in the room, what about towards your brother or your sister that keeps doing that same annoying thing over and over and over and over? What would mercy look like in that situation? Or maybe it's just people you don't know. It's, it's, it's someone in our community or around you or a neighbor, someone who's a, in, enslaved in addiction to alcohol or drugs or porn Someone living in adultery, someone identifying in LGBTQ community, maybe it's a racist neighbor or, or just a mean neighbor who's constantly complaining, constantly yelling at you, and in your heart, as you look at the sins of other people, what grows most naturally is disgust. We're, we're, we're drifting away from that first beatitude of poor in spirit where we're recognizing our own sin. We're thinking highly of ourselves and just looking down on everyone 
around us. And Jesus is inviting you into a heart of mercy. But, but just a qualification, mercy doesn't mean we just overlook sin. It doesn't mean we would never confront sin. It doesn't mean there will never be consequences for sin. It doesn't mean that sometimes forgiveness is really complicated and really difficult. Also in that same book by Tim Keller called Forgive, he, he wrestles some with the different stages of forgiveness. What do you do if someone hasn't repented? Uh, because Jesus often, sometimes he says, that if they sin against you and if they repent, then forgive. But other places, it just says that the Christian should forgive as Christ forgave us. And so he talks about two stages of forgiveness that in, at all times we should strive for this attitude of forgiveness where we're releasing our grudge, we're releasing our bitterness, we're releasing our desire for vengeance or for someone else's demise. We're turning that over to the Lord. But yet only if they repent, only, only, only if, if reconciliation is pursued can, by the offending party, can, can reconciliation really happen. And maybe you have confronted and there's, there's no repentance and you're, you're wondering what does that look like. And it is, it's difficult to know, but you're, you're asking God, Lord, help me. Help me to walk away from bitterness and to trust you with this to release that in my attitude, to forgive, and then maybe in ways to pursue reconciliation. But, but then even this, sometimes reconciliation can happen, but yet there are still consequences. There are ways to pursue forgiveness and, and reconciliation and mercy, and at the same time pursuing justice and consequences. In, that, in this book, there's a story about Rachel Denhollander, who was the first of hundreds of women to accuse that uh, USA gymnastics doctor, physician, of assault and abuse. And Rachel's a Christian woman, and she's wrestling through what does true forgiveness look like and mercy and yet also pursuing justice. And as, as she's working through that theology in her mind, she says this in court. So she is pursuing justice. She's in court. She's looking at the offender, Larry Nasser, and, and she said this, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Forgiveness and justice can be pursued at the same time. Mercy and consequences can be pursued at the same time. And you hear even in her words what that looks like. There is a mercy toward him that is wanting him to find reconciliation with God but pursuing that through a path of justice and consequences. But it's a heart of, I want what is best for this person. And what's best for this person is that they will turn away from all of their sins and turn toward God. And what's best for others that they may harm is that they will be held accountable. So mercy is a costly love in action, 
relieving the, the misery of sinners, seeing them in their misery, seeing that, that state of sin as a miserable condition that those eyes like Jesus had when he saw the multitudes in Matthew 9 saying he was moved with compassion because he saw them like sheep harassed and helpless without a shepherd. But then mercy also relieves sufferers It's a costly love and action that relieves the misery of sufferers. Jesus telling the the story of the Good Samaritan tells about a man who uh, was walking down this road. He gets beat up, stripped naked, left there on the road, left half dead. And it says that a, a priest saw him but walked by, did nothing. A Levite saw him but walked by, did nothing. And then this Samaritan walks by, see him, sees him in his need. And stops, inconveniences himself, gets down, bandages his wounds, oil and ointment, and then takes him to this inn and gives of his money so that he can be taken care of and says, I will come back and and whatever expenses accrue, I will pay those as well. And so there is a costly love for for this man that he didn't even know that he's just passing by on the road. He he sees him in his need and Jesus says, which one of these, these three acted like a neighbor? And they said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. If you actually look at the word mercy in the New Testament, in the times that it's talking about us as humans showing mercy toward other fellow humans, most of them aren't talking about mercy in forgiveness, mercy toward their sins. Most of them are talking about this, about relieving the pain of the poor, about meeting needs of people around you, about, about showing this kind of tender-hearted mercy that's, that's meeting physical and, and financial needs of those around you. First John 3, 17, John says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? We're starting to see again this connection between the mercy we received and the mercy that we show. That if we're not demonstrating this kind of mercy, this kind of costly love in action to people in need, how can we say that God's love is really in us? In James 2, James says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he says this, he gives this illustration. Suppose a a brother or sister is without clothes or without daily food, and one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, be fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Last week, our family, we were driving in our van. We pulled up to a stoplight and there is a man there holding a cardboard sign. It says, homeless, veteran, anything helps. And that prompted this discussion in our family about some of the complexities about homelessness and about people that you see in need and how sometimes giving helps and, and sometimes it hurts and the questions about, well, in our society today, and in, in this world that we live in, can't, can't just anyone turn their life around if they just work hard enough? Isn't this just their own fault? Aren't they just being lazy? 
And then, and then we also know sometimes they're just con artists and they're not actually homeless and they're not actually even poor and this is just a way that they, they make a lot of money and you hear different stories like that. Or, or, or someone else has said, well, I've also heard that sometimes they use that money for drugs or for bad things. And we've got a lot of complex topics around how do we as Christians today in this world help those who are in need those who are poor. But we got to be really careful that it doesn't just become excuses for why we always pass by on the other side. Why we're always too busy to stop. We're worried about being taken advantage of. We're worried that we don't know. We don't know really all about this person and what they will actually do and And what it can be, what it could be, is an excuse to never help those who are in need. And yet we've got all these places in the New Testament that talk about how central it is to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we we reflect his heart of mercy and compassion to those who are poor and needy. It's true religion. It's undefiled. Visiting the the, the widows and the fatherless in their affliction to care for those who are in need. Here at our church, we have a, a committee of deacons called the Mercy Committee. And there are so many ways that our church does this well, ways that a lot of the times the church doesn't even know about, where they're giving rides to people, where they're, they're helping those who are poor, they are helping with financial needs, purchased large items for, for people and things that are needed for their home or, or to get to a job. But it's not even just the deacons. I hear stories about people in our church who give of their time, who give of their finances. My family experienced this in immense ways when we went through our house fire. The way that this church and other friends in the community sacrificially gave toward us. It was overwhelming. And yet also in our church we have Lots of different ministries that are geared toward this in our community. The Lazarus House, uh, it was a homeless shelter in St. Charles where uh, some in our church provide meals and, and help with that. And the prison ministry and Fox Valley Christian Action here in St. Charles, ministering to under-resourced families throughout the valley. Um, our Love and Action Fund, we've got a benevolent fund here where people give and the deacons use that. The, the meal ministry the Crisis Pregnancy Center, the Friendship Class. There are lots of different ways here in this church that, that you can be involved in, in seeing how do I meet needs of those who are really needy in our community and around us, in our church and in around our community. Sometimes, kids, how could you do this? You see someone at your school sitting at a table by themselves. No one likes them. Something's different about them. And you say, you know, let me demonstrate some costly love in action. Give of my time, give of my convenience, give up what I wanted to do and go show kindness to someone who's lonely, who's isolated, who's hurting. Praying, Jesus, give me eyes to see this in people. Help me to recognize the the pain that people are experiencing and God, use me to show that kind of mercy. How does this increase in us? 
Well, it's, it's when you humbly know mercy that you joyfully show mercy. So, so what is the connection between the mercy we receive from God and the mercy we demonstrate to others? Because this is how. This is how as a church, we want to cultivate this. We want to grow in this. This is the way. It's by remembering and knowing and experiencing and believing the mercy that we have received from God. What, it's not saying that if we show mercy, we earn or somehow merit mercy from God. That, that, that doesn't make sense. The word mercy itself has in its, in its root this idea of being undeserved. You can't earn mercy any more than you can earn grace or you can earn a gift. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus started this doorway into this life in his kingdom. It's, it's by being poor in spirit, recognizing we're bankrupt before God. We cannot earn his grace. We cannot earn his mercy. And, and you broaden that out to the scriptures as a whole and the doctrine of salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't earn his mercy. So what is the connection? Because he is making a connection. And as you look at some of these other passages, some that I've already read, I think what we understand is that when we show mercy toward others, it's an evidence of us. It's an evidence in us that we have received God's mercy. And the flip side, that when we are withholding mercy, if you're someone who has no mercy toward those around you, there's not much evidence that you've genuinely turned away from your sins and trusted in God and received his mercy. So Jesus, though, the, the tone that he's giving here is not shame on you, Christians. That's not the way that he says this. You might be feeling that right now. Man, I haven't been living up to this. You know what? There's mercy for this, too. And the way that Jesus is saying it is not shame, it's, it's blessed. Let me invite you into the good life, the joy-filled life. Remember the mercy you received from me, the costly love in action. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Ephesians 2, we already read that says, but God being rich in mercy. And so you want to grow in this Christian. Remind yourself, remember the kind of mercy that we have received. All of our sins. Feel it. Feel the weight of that. My greed, my selfishness, my hurtfulness toward others, unkindness, my lack of Love, my lack of generosity, my lack of mercy, my lust, all of the ways that I think I can live this life without God. Daily we need God's mercy. Daily we need his forgiveness. And he pours it out. Our sins are many. His mercies are more. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. And when we really believe that, when we really know his mercy, we'll joyfully show his mercy. As we close, just think about what is a specific way Jesus is inviting you into a merciful life today. 
Maybe it is someone you need to forgive or, or take steps toward forgiveness. Maybe it is just a general attitude of compassion, brokenhearted mercy towards sinners around you. Or maybe you pray this as a family. Lord, what is, would you lead us to one person this week? Would you open our eyes to one person in need where we could demonstrate mercy this week as a family or as an individual? God will do that. What, what if our whole church did that? What if our whole church, every week as we gather, we're overwhelmed with God's mercy and, and can't wait to gather and show that kind of mercy toward one another and we go out into this world recharged and renewed and we can't wait to demonstrate this kind of mercy toward people around us? What kind of an impact would that have? It's overwhelming. When you look at the needs around us, you can't as an individual, we can't as a church either, meet every social justice need care for every, every topic, every need that comes up around our community. But you can pray, God, what's one way? Who's one person that I can make a difference in their life by demonstrating mercy this week? Let's pray.